This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. Welcome back to the Macro Trading Floor. This is Alf speaking, CEO and founder of the Macro Compass. And this is Andreas Steno speaking, CEO and founder of Steno Research. Alf, um, the, mar- the market is partying like we have QE back. <laughs> so do we have QE back? Let's talk a little bit about liquidity. Because, yeah. um, I mean, I have some interesting thoughts around liquidity in the current environment. Obviously, QE is not back. Let's just start from there. Um, at least not in the US. QE is obviously back with the with the vengeance in Japan, but <laughs> that's a whole different discussion. And I mean, the Japanese pace of buying over the course of January has exceeded the US Federal Reserve purchase tempo through March 2020. So at least we have QE in size in one part of the world. Uh, and if we look at Global liquidity aggregates, that's enough to bring liquidity in positive territory for the month of January. So you could argue if if it's as important that Bank of Japan buys a JGB as if the U.S. Treasury is buying a U.S. Treasury, sorry, the Federal Reserve is buying a U.S. Treasury, then you could argue that QE is back. I think that's a so-and-so conclusion. Um, but in any case, if you look at dollar liquidity, it's actually risen more than 300 billion from the bottom. Due to technical factors, um, we have liquidity flowing from the U.S. Treasury due to the drawdown in the Treasury General account. So the U.S. Treasury can park cash at the Fed and they can decide to spend them. Now they need to spend them due to the debt ceiling. That's a liquidity addition, but it's not outright QE. Um, and on the margin, it shouldn't be as positive as outright QE, I'd say. Yeah. So the answer is no, we don't have QE back, not at all. Um, first of all, I need to clarify something. I mean, this bugs me so much. I've seen probably um, 10, 12 instances where macro commentators are creating a net liquidity index. What the fuck is that? That's bank reserves. It's one line item. You can go on the Fred free database and type in bank reserves and you'll have the net liquidity index is just bank reserves. Okay, so clear that out. You are right on the TGA. Um, a drawdown in the Treasury General accounts, mechanically, it's just accounting. Literally re- releases cash, both in the real economy, by the way, and in financial markets, or actually in the interbank system. So then you have more bank reserves around. And that basically sterilizes quantitative tightening, let's say. Let's call it like that. For your, I think you're right, Andres, like three months, minimum three months. It could be a bit longer. So... On a, on a rate of change basis, reserves have stopped falling, let's say, or are supposed to stop falling over the next three months and are actually increased by 300 billion over the last three months. Um, is there a one-to-one correlation? So do banks take reserves and buy the S&P 500? So can we draw two lines together on a chart? No, we cannot. I was in charge of running as well the bank reserves book at ING, and no, you cannot buy S&P 500 with bank reserves. I can testify that. Of course, there is a mechanism in place. I mean, you can be more aggressive in in bond land, especially regulatory well-treated bonds. You can buy more credit if you want. Your risk manager, though, isn't going to change his mind because you have more bank reserves. By the way, that's something else to consider. So there are relationships, but it's not as tight. Uh, People like simple narratives. Monetary plumbing is not simple. 
But big, big picture, big picture, um, the market is behaving as if QE is back. You're totally right. The two months or three months rate of change in US financial conditions, the loosening we have seen basically since November on a rate of change basis is a bigger loosening than in 2016 where all central banks were announcing QE or cutting rates. You remember the Chinese art lending and all those stories, right? And also around the same pace of the 2009 loosening of financial conditions. So after the great financial crisis and when the Federal Reserve decided to intervene. This is the type of reaction we have had. We are having a QE-like reaction. And I, I want to get your thoughts on that. What do you think Powell is going to do now? First of all, we have a weaker dollar. We have performing credits. We have performing bonds, so performing right. rates. And we have performing equities. So right about every single category in the financial conditions index is loosening. Um, the opposite is happening in Europe to a certain extent outside of European credits and European equities holding up against European rates and mm. the euro gaining. Um, so, I mean, let, let, let's see. We've been talking about this before, Elf. Um, Jay Powell has been pretty clear that risk-taking is not for this timing. Uh, or at least excess risks, risk-taking is not uh, for this timing, uh, simply due to the fact that financial conditions are correlated to inflation. Uh, and you can, you can show that over a pretty long time series history. Uh, every time financial conditions loosen, um, you get a spike in inflation with the time lag, uh, and they're obviously not interested in that. Uh, and... I'm getting a little bit worried that we will have the inflation scare back towards the end of the year unless they uh, contain this now. Um, and I guess that they, they will reach the same conclusion within the Fed. You have looked at the 70s a couple of times, Andreas, which I think is, um, well, obviously the world is very different from the 70s today. Uh, much less success that back then and demographics were better and the uh, economy was an industrial driven economy, a labor driven economy. It's not the same tech driven economy as today, but still the parallel is the Fed was trying to fight inflation in the early 70s and they tightened up and then they prematurely loosened. They basically declared victory a bit too early. I'm going to stop the story here and I'm going to let you continue on what happened after. <laughs> well, it was pretty simple. We got a new wave of inflation after, say, 24 months or thereabout uh, from the time where they actually allowed conditions to loosen. So there is a time lag between loosening financial conditions and the actual impulse on inflation. Um, we have loosening conditions in China. We've had that for quite a while um, as a consequence of their perma lockdown. That is a global inflationary impulse down the road. I don't think it's a short term impulse, but it will be a, an inflationary impulse later. Um, so if the Federal Reserve decides to sort of add to that momentum by allowing markets to loosen, uh, well, I'm pretty sure that we will have, have inflation back. Uh, and Powell has been firm, uh, even in his direct um, referrals to what happened in the 1970s. He did. He, he was clear that he, it's 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 the most important job for him now not to repeat that mistake. Um, so let's see whether he's got the guts to actually do something about it. Uh, the issue is that uh, pricing is against him in financial markets. Uh, so they will have to shock the interest rate market by now 
to really get this message through. Um, secondly, other central banks around them have started to to fade um, in their hiking cycle. Bank of Canada uh, is now clearly communicating that they will pause from here. Um, and they've been almost one step ahead of the Fed throughout this entire cycle. So I'm not saying that it's a leading indicator per se, but it's just noteworthy. Um, Andreas, I'm looking at the uh, volatility adjusted market dashboard and I'm looking at implied hikes and cuts one year ahead by interest rate markets. And then it says the following, US minus 70 basis points. So few hikes priced in and a lot of cuts after that in a year, negative 70. Canada, negative 150 basis points, starting from today, eh? a year from now. UK, nothing. Japan, 20 basis point of hikes. Australia, 40 basis point of hikes. And Europe is the only country that is priced to hike by 80 basis point over the next country. I mean, the only jurisdiction priced to hike by 80 basis point. So basically the point seems to be here that especially if you look at jurisdictions with a very tight relationship to the housing market as a wealth generation mechanism, Australia, Canada, the UK, they are done. They seem to be done. But do you, I mean, look at Australia. We had a stronger CPI print, surprised on the upside. Aussie dollar went through the roof and some of these expectations were a bit repriced. Do you think there is a correlation between places where the housing market is very big and relevant for wealth generation, systemically important, and the pace of hikes? Of course. I mean, why wouldn't you consider that as a central banker? If you pulled the rock from under the local housing market, um, I'm not sure that you're able to sell a lot of <laughs> conference speaker jobs after that. Uh, joking aside, of course, it's a part of their reaction function. Um, if you look at Australian CPI, just to take that most recent example, it came in smoking hot as, at 7.8% as far as I remember. Um, new high for the cycle. Um, and as far as I can see from forward-looking indicators for the uh, Oceanian region, it's going to increase further. Um, it's kind of a lacked response to everything that's been ongoing in the West. I know Australia is part of the West uh, from a cultural perspective, but... Um, I think what's quite clearly happening now is that Japan, China, Indonesia, Australia, countries like that, they face this third wave of inflation as a consequence of Europe buying up everything that they needed. <laughs> um, it's, it's actually pretty simple. Uh, when, when the inflation wave hit European shores uh, last year, Europe decided as a consequence of the supply side crisis to buy every single available LNG ship, um, which would have otherwise been going to Korea, Japan, um, and they were asleep over there when this happened. Pardon my friends, they were simply asleep. Europe actually managed to attract all of this. So they now see the increase in, in a lot of necessities with the time lag to Europe because Europe outsmarted them or outbought them basically last year. Um, and it's visible in price data, both in Japan and Australia, for example. Now I know Australia is a supplier of this, but they obviously feel the... Um, impulse from from um, the region surrounding them uh, so if you if you ask me whether 40 basis points is enough for australia no not at all <laughs> i mean uh just a week ago i discussed with a couple of my hedge fund clients whether it was feasible that they hiked at this next meeting and i said sure i mean the risk reward is so good at it uh given that the inflation is running hot still um so they have an issue like the european central bank they will have to keep acting 
That's correct. So there are places where central banks are still forced to choose between the housing market and fighting inflation, right? So it's not as simple as saying, hey, Australia is a very large and systematic um, housing market and same Canada, so they're going to stop straight away. There are more nuances to that. Um, I want to chat as well about the dollar for a second because it's been a big mover. Actually, Andreas, I think it was basically all one trade last year. Um, you know, you basically the Fed wants to hike, so you buy the dollar and you sell about anything else. Gold, stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, anything that is an asset denominated in dollar. It seems like this year we're having the opposite, right? We're having the Fed is done. We can buy everything, basically, and we can sell the dollar as the result of it. So... I mean, when I say the dollar is always fun, the dollar against what is the first question I ask myself, because <laughs> you can't trade the dollar, you trade the gold. dollar against something else, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's start from, um, from gold, actually. Let's talk about the dollar against gold. What do you make of that? Well, the, the funny thing is that gold shouldn't necessarily be a performing trade, given what we see elsewhere in the asset landscape, in my opinion. It rhymes with a weaker dollar, fair enough. Um, a weakening dollar is a positive signal for everything denominated in dollars uh, for the rest of the world, right? Um, but in any case, I wouldn't consider gold a cyclical trade um, alongside industrials, materials, etc., because it's not used in industrials, right? Um, Silver is to a certain extent, copper is, um, nickel, you, you name it, right? That makes more sense. To me, gold is mostly a real interest rate trade, um, given that it is mostly used as a store of value in times of weak uh, alternatives in terms of real interest rates. Uh, and you cannot really say that real interest rates tell you to buy gold with an arm and a leg, rather the opposite. Um, so the gap between real interest rates and gold right now is, is interesting, at least if you look at it in a nine-month perspective, something like that, it, the, the gap is just widening. So basically, Andres, you're telling me that in the commodities complex, this is something I also agree with, in the commodities complex, you prefer industrial commodities that are actually linked to a reopening cycle in China. Yeah. So say copper, zinc, aluminum. I put up a chart uh, for subscribers that actually shows um, how much China actually is responsible for global demand of these currencies, it's, uh, of these commodities. It's pretty big, um, rather than gold. I mean, gold seems to have benefited from the other leg of the trade, right? The other leg has been, the Fed is done, uh, we can, uh, you know, buy everything denominated in dollars. That's fine. We're gonna just go to the moon. It's, it basically falls in the same basket of Bitcoin, of course, with a lower beta than Bitcoin eh? uh, from that perspective. But it does. Other commodities are rallying, um, industrial metals, for example. But I think that makes more sense from a macro perspective than gold uh, rallying. So if I need to prefer, I'd rather have industrial metals as a commodity in my book than gold. I, uh, I perfectly agree with that view, even though having a bit of gold never hurts, but <laughs> um, I, I, I perfectly agree. And given that 
we essentially started out by telling each other that Powell needs to re-emphasize the positive real rates for another quarter or so. Yeah. Then I guess uh, this gold trade is running on fumes by now, uh, if we are right on, on that assessment. This episode is brought to you by Curve. Curve is a payments card company that empowers customers to control, maintain, and direct total control into their finances. By using Curve and adding your other cards to Curve's wallet, you unlock new value like cash flow management, self-driving money, and the ability to stack rewards. Guys, basically think of Curve like one unique credit card that helps you maximize your rewards. Rather than add another card to your wallet, Curve instead combines all your cards into one. It effectively helps you maximize your rewards. You also earn a 1% cashback on everything that you buy between now and the next six months. It is also useful to get on top of your cash flows by consolidating multiple credit cards into one single place. You are eligible to receive $20 in Curve Cash to your Curve account within 14 days of you downloading the Curve app through the referral link in the description list of the podcast and making your first transaction. So if you want to get your $20 in cash back, the referral link is in the description below the video. I want to throw an interesting theory at you in sure. relation to dollar markets the US dollar, the whole discussion whether this cyclical trade currently is wrong-footed by the recession that is potentially upcoming. And allow me to wear this tinfoil hat while I present the theory to you. So uh, actually, on the day of recording, we are recording Thursday, the 26th of January. Sure. We received new information from the um, Bureau of Labor Statistics mm. in the US surrounding last year's labor market. Um, so they have what they call the labor market dynamics summary, yeah. uh, something like that. BED is the short uh, version of it. Uh, and the BED hints of a job loss of, I think, 300,000-ish jobs in the second quarter of 2022. Yeah. That is the last quarter where they have sufficient data to update the BED model. Uh, the BED is based on uh, census wage um, data from actual companies. Um, it doesn't cover the public sector, so that's a difference from the non-farm yeah. payroll survey, but it's based on actual data, and they have actual data underlying for the birth rate of companies and the death rate of companies. Ah. And it shows a big drop in employment in the second quarter last year, where we had negative real growth in the US. So at that time, we discussed, was this a recession? It wasn't really easy to figure out whether it was or not. And I think most people concluded that it wasn't. Um, and now we get pretty firm evidence that we actually had job losses in the US in that quarter. Um, in sharp contrast to what the non-farm payrolls report suggested during that quarter. It, I think it added a million jobs during that quarter on aggregate, right? So there's a gap of more than a million jobs between yeah. the non-farm payrolls report and the BED. So here's my point. Hmm. If you look at the adjustments made to the non-farm payrolls report on a running monthly basis due to their sample model on birth rates versus death rates, of yeah. companies, they add, I think, 120,000 jobs on average each and every That's single true. month. And I'm getting more and more convinced that it's complete bullshit. Although complete your, tinfoil, 
although your tinfoil hat has just fallen right now at, at the apex of your of your theory um i um, tend to agree with the um, skepticism around non-farm payrolls there are there is a funny anecdote i'm gonna now tell and a, a more data-based uh, study so the funny anecdote is that the u.s government has reached out a couple of weeks ago seeing some of the work i've done on, on labor i'm probably not the only one they're talking to and saying hey um you know we see that there are some statistical inconsistencies can you please help us look into what the hell we're doing here that was already interesting that you reach out to somebody me or somebody else saying hey we move the markets by push by pushing these reports we're not really sure the statistical methodology behind looks good. Can you have a look? Okay. The work that I had done, and you also have been doing, Andreas, basically looked at a bunch of inconsistencies. Right? And, and the two big ones were the household's um, job survey was completely, uh, really, really violently different than the non-farm payroll. And second, really this net birth debt adjustment, it's complete bullocks at this stage. I mean, you want to tell me that the US is opening more than double Com the net net basis double the amount of companies it was setting up every single month compared to before the pandemic that and, still, and still and that's, still and still running yeah, i mean that, that's the that's pace. the weird thing it i mean double I, the pace consistently yeah. because you, you can make an argument that you have a reopening you have had stimulus so more entrepreneurs want to set up at the beginning i get that but we have been doing this now for two years, assuming that every single month we create double the amount of companies in the U.S. than before the pandemic. Sorry, it's bullshit. Yeah, and it, it, it kind of shows the complexity in measuring employment in a big country like the U.S. I'm, I'm used to covering employment numbers from Denmark and Norway, countries yeah. like that. And you have a change of, say, 500 people per month. You can basically ask them to show up and count them. <laughs> it's impossible to do that in the U.S., That's right? And, uh, uh, so so they, I think they sample... Is it between twenty-five and thirty percent of the overall labor market yeah. in the yeah. uh, uh, actually farm? the respondents? That's the other thing I was looking at. The amount of respondents in some of these uh, labor market surveys are like at the lowest in twenty years. So you're having like a smaller and smaller sample, which is already statistically less significant, and then you have this completely model-driven net birth death rate, which you doubt yourself. I mean, the, the labor, the Bureau of Labor Statistics has themselves doubts about it, and. Um, uh, I mean, yeah. Honestly, and, I th we might be we might have overestimated the amount of jobs created by a pretty large amount. It's difficult to pinpoint how much that is, but markets care about the rate of change, Andreas, as well. And if I look even at the reported data and I blend them together with other um, indicators, I'm doing some work on payrolls, on taxes, because that is the source. Exactly what you're referring to, basically, when you have the hard data of how much withheld tax you have from yes. labor really that's the cleanest data you can ever get i mean that amount literally tells you how much taxes people are paying from labor and companies are paying from labor right so if you look at that data it lags by a while i mean you have to wait for six months to get clean data but it's pointing a picture of a weakening labor market already in 2022 pretty aggressively so and it makes sense it just makes sense we have tightened financial conditions in 2022 so rapidly it will be the first time in history that the labor market doesn't really weaken yeah and elf um allow me to say this it, it would be pretty funny if the recession is already behind us <laughs> if you know what i mean if if if, if 22 was a recession yeah it, it may be a game changer for, for what we talk about this year because everyone's talking about when is it 
It was last year. It could be. I mean, I wouldn't completely rule it out. Ah, uh, the only thing that doesn't fit the bill is earnings. Yeah. Because you know, uh, how do you really re define a recession? We have done it already in the past, but it's people losing their job and companies having profits declining, right? So or earnings declining, and that hasn't happened. That's you know. Yeah. That's in the data. Yes, the pace, the rate of change has slowed down dramatically. We are trying to go towards zero on a year-on-year -year change, but it hasn't been negative in 2022 at all. So no. that piece will be missing. Yeah. But um, we, we were talking about the US dollar before I started wearing my tinfoil hat and all that. And I wanted to get back to that because I, I released my so-called dollar-o-meter, so the dollar barometer, um, just this week. And we assessed the dollar on like five fundamental variables. Um, first of all, forward-looking interest rate spreads versus peers, so Japan, Europe, um, for example. And um, on such gauges, the spread will compress materially over time against peers. Shouldn't be positive for the dollar. Inflation spreads, both priced by markets, but also assessed by forward-looking models. Also, in inflation terms, the US is compressing relative to the rest of the world. Um, if we look at dollar liquidity, currently it's being added due to these technical factors surrounding the debt ceiling. Uh, we use China as a proxy for the dollar. Uh, if the Chinese credit impulse is strong, it's usually better news for the Japanese yen and the euro relative to the dollar. So I've mentioned four factors now, all speaking against the US dollar. Is there one factor speaking for the US dollar? Well, if you look at positioning, yes, I'd say now that the market is fairly short dollars, at least against some of the major peers. Yeah. Uh, but overall, the market was just so long dollars last year, so I don't think the whole trade is unwounded. I agree with the tailwind behind a weaker dollar uh, from a cycle perspective, from a what could actually push the dollar higher again. There are two things. First is Powell. I yeah. mean, the guy can easily do that if he wants by hammering back the message that, you know, these animal spirits need to be calmed down effectively. So tightening conditions again. And second is uh, more of a jump risk. It's sort of an insurance thingy because in, in recessions, actually, the dollar doesn't necessarily weaken immediately because of deleveraging. So if you have some default cycles, some unexpected bad news from a credit perspective, some deleveraging episode, that means you have to bid up your um, you have to bid up dollars to make sure you can uh, repair your balance sheets, basically. So that could be a one-off event that could push the dollar higher, a collateral problem, basically. Um, not easy to foresee in the short term because of the fact that bank reserves will be increasing. So, I mean, from, from a repo plumbing perspective, that's more hard to foresee. Um, but from a credit perspective, I mean, we have had in the real estate market, one of the news of the last week that I found interesting was that KKR, uh, one of the largest real investment uh, funds in the world, also put up redemption gates for one of the largest yes. fund funders, following what Blackstone had done for the Brits. So they're basically trying to lock in investors because if investors float away, then they're supposed to sell their assets and probably they'll find it in a discount in markets at the moment. But I mean, uh, already in the first place, it is a complete meltdown to create a liquid product on an illiquid asset class. I mean, it doesn't <laughs> exist. Um, when beep hits the fan, it doesn't exist. That's and that's what, that's what is being showcased right now. Um, because if everybody wants to, to leave that product, uh, you, you wouldn't be able to, to satisfy those liquidity needs. Yeah, that's true. So Andreas, um, Actually, we haven't told people that we don't have a guest this week, but we are 25 <laughs> minutes in, so they probably have figured it out by now. So why yeah. don't we 
come up with something that could look like a trade ourselves. I mean, it's easy to blubber for 25 minutes, but what do you like here? Sure, sure. Um, uh, I was asked late last year, what's your trade of the year for, for, for next year? And I said copper. Uh, I'm still invested. I still like the trade uh, because I think there's a clear time lag between a Chinese credit impulse and the final price action seen in copper. So I would expect copper to peak maybe between April and, and May. Um, so a way of expressing it is the COPA, um, Wisdom Tree ETF, long copper. Otherwise, if you want like a broader basket on industrial metals, I am, uh, I fancy that trade as well. Then you could use AIGI, um, also in uh, a Wisdom Tree ETF. Um, by now, um, it's been performing like crazy during January. Um, is that an issue for the trade? Sure. Could be an issue for the timing of the entry. Um, but I think fundamentally speaking, uh, at least for as long as we can postpone this recession talk or even conclude that it happened last year. Now I need my tinfoil hat again, right? Um, then th this is a very decent risk reward trade. It's not trading at expensive levels relative to the amount of uh, demand that will face this particular part of the commodity complex in, in current years. All right. I'm going to be saying short boons in Europe. Um, I, I just can't reconcile there what's going on. So you have the ECB releasing their super core inflation metric. It's a moving average of the stickiest component of the inflationary basket in Europe. It's uh, if you plot the chart, it looks like a, an altcoin during 2020. It's just skyrocketing higher. So these guys, I'm not sure for how long markets in Europe can just price in La La Land. I mean, they're just focusing on the re-rating of, of Chinese growth. So the re-rating of European growth as a result of re-rating of Chinese growth. And I get that. That makes sense. That makes sense, cyclically speaking. But sorry, if China reopens and European growth is stronger and super core inflation is still trending higher in the Eurozone, can you tell me how um, forward rates and booms and BTPs and all these, these European bonds are are rallying very aggressively. That mm. part doesn't really square, I think, Andreas. So. No, no, but, but I mean, if you look at, at a bit beneath the surface um, on sectors performing in Europe, uh, we have industrials and materials. Uh, so basically parts of the supply chain to, to China, if they really reopen and uh, do a reopening at full speed. And then we have consumer discretionary. If the Chinese are back flying, they want their Prada bags as well. <laughs> so, yeah, um, pretty much. Uh, so, so it, it is extremely tied to what's going on in China. Um, and obviously you should put all your eggs in one basket. So if you're long China via commodities, why don't you hedge yourself a little bit uh, with a bet on the ECB right. fighting against this? I think it's a that's, very good uh, mixture. That's exactly uh, the thing here, Andres. Our friends at Wisdom Tree have an ETF for that too. You don't need to have any futures or have any fancy accounts with leverage or, or, or um, you know, futures account. You can just buy the Wisdom Tree Bund 10-year daily short ETF. So you can just uh, find it as well through Wisdom Tree in case you would like to think about the trade. Said that, Andreas, anything else you'd like to tell our listeners for this interesting episode? No, I'm looking forward to being back next week. Uh, and I hope that we will be talking about the monkey JPEG rule in a week's time again. <laughs> but I don't know whether Jay Powell will refer directly to it, but it's it's gone viral, my little JPEG, or sorry, my meme with Jay Powell saying, I will continue to hike interest rates until you morons stop trading monkey JPEGs. And I think the rule is intact. And you guys have traded 
JPEGs of monkeys throughout <laughs> January. So I hope that he emphasizes this again. One last reminder from my end, and probably you'll do it too, Andreas. If you like what I discuss here on the macro trading floor, this is just literally the appetizer of what I do on the macrocompass.com, my macro strategy platform. Andreas? Yes. Um, I will ask you to go to stenoresearch.com. You can also find the handle on, on my Twitter. Um, we do a lot of politics on top of uh, our macro analysis. Uh, for example, we do cover the current situation with Sweden and Finland not being uh, allowed to join NATO due to their battle with Turkey. Um, it's a really, really, really weird story. Uh, so go have a look. <laughs> All right, guys, and we'll be back next week. Super episode, big central bank week, ECB and Fed. Next week, we will release, it, um, I think, as always, on Sunday, recording yeah. after the central bank meetings to break it down for you guys. Yeah. Rates up, monkey JPEGs down. See you in a week. <laughs>